The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this spring break? Yeah, good. Well, there was a new tradition in my family that began uh, a new experience of spring break for me. And it started last year when our family spring break trip became Leave Tracy at Home family spring break trip. I'm like, what in the world? And you, it's your fault. You went off to college and all of a sudden mom decides, let's do mother-daughter trip for spring break. So I get left at home. So if anybody wants to feel sorry for somebody, I'm taking, I mean, I'm available for you to put your sympathy towards me. So I, uh, I'm not bitter. I just was a little secretly happy that it was freezing cold in Florida all week. I mean, in Gulf Shores. I'm like, hey, you're looking for sympathy for me. Sorry. Uh, you could have been home with me. But uh, no, I'm good. So I don't know if y'all just know the front row that there, there's actually seats up here. So um, if y'all ever want to sit up closer to me, I won't take it so personal there. It's just all about me this morning in the announcement time. So uh, tell anybody who comes in, like, just say, hey, there's three big rows up front, you know, almost four rows. But uh, so we're continuing our study in Genesis. And I wonder if I could get inside your head and think, what is your view of God? Uh, We all have different views of God, and, and our views are influenced by how we process uh, things in life. Um, our parents are God's gift to us to teach us a view, especially fathers are God's gift to teach us hopefully a healthy view of God. But a lot of times we fathers let our kids down and, and don't present the best picture of God. Um, we interpret life uh, experiences certain ways that sometimes skews our view of God. And um, a lot of times our own sin will uh, affect or pervert the view of God. And that's what we're going to see in the text today. We've been working through Genesis, and we're kind of coming to the end of Genesis. And so I just want to briefly remind you of the beginning of Genesis, because the beginning of Genesis is really an intro to Genesis. It's an intro to the Bible, but it's also an intro to your God. It's like the opening lines are, meet your God. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you're about to see a big story about. And God was creator and he was good. He was creating good and it was glorious and it was beautiful and it was gracious, kind God creating for his people an incredible paradise to enjoy. And he gave them freedom to enjoy that. And then with their freedoms, they sinned and sin entered the world and corrupted humanity. and, And we started to die and get sick it corrupted the paradise that was there as it started to unravel. And, and God in his character, being the God he is at that moment, seeks after Adam and Eve in the garden, remember? And they're hiding in the garden and God is coming to them to cover their shame. And this is the kind of God that we should know. He is a loving, gracious, just God, but he is loving and gracious, pursuing a plan of redemption and restoration. And that's the story of the Bible. And as the story unfolds, that plan of redemption, redeeming a people unto himself and restoration, restoring the planet to the original pre-fall condition, the paradise, we see he's going to return and do that. But as that story unfolds, it zeroes in on a family, on Abraham and Sarah, their descendant, their seed will be the redeemer and the restorer. And so we've been reading these narratives, but we're trying to keep track at multiple levels, the greater narrative that's going on. And we keep getting into individual lives of these characters. And as we've gotten into the story a 
have Joseph, you had Abraham, you had Isaac, you had Jacob, and now we're on to, to Joseph, one of the 12 children of of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So you have one of the tribes of Israel is where this story goes. But we're zeroing in on Joseph. We're seeing week after week after week, one overarching idea in the Joseph narrative. And that is something, you're going to say it with me. God uses. Okay, D-C-A plus, all right? Good job. Let's say it together again. God uses evil for good. God's not evil. God doesn't do evil. There is no hint of evil in God's character. If you know the God of the Bible, you would never think God is evil. But what you see week after week is that God uses evil for good. He is that kind of God. Is that the view of God that you have? If not, then we need to continue to get to know God better in the scriptures. And I'm just going to say that over and over. If you're not reading the scriptures, your life is going to get messed up. The scriptures reveal the unseen, the invisible realities that we must believe. Faith is being convinced of those unseen realities that you won't know any other way than God graciously revealing them to us in the scriptures. How do you know what God is like? The unseen is revealed in the scriptures. God reveals himself to us in his word. And so you must, I must, we must be Bible-saturated people so that we don't get skewed in our thinking as evil hits us as we experience evil it's real people are mean and cruel and evil and this world is jacked up and if you aren't in the word of God then you're not going to know how to think about it and you're going to get hardened and your view of God is going to get skewed and it's not just because of evil against you but it's because of your own evil your own sin my own sin that skews our view of God. And in the text today, we're going to look at six chapters. Hold on, we've got four hours. Don't worry, we'll be finished by four, four hours from now. Uh, we're going to do chapters 42 through 47 in Genesis. In these chapters, Joseph sees his brothers. It finally starts to see the dawn rising. Things start turning. Things start going circumstantially better in his life. But what we're going to do, we're going to see that Joseph is a Christ-like figure in this story. It's a real person that really happened. The events of this story are factual events. But in them, the way they're presented to us in scriptures, we see, man, this is a real picture of Christ, the way Joseph responds. But we're going to walk in the sandals of Joseph's brothers. We are the brothers of the story. We always want to be the hero. We're not Joseph in the story, okay? We're Joseph's brothers. And so we're going to see mainly, one of the main themes that happens here is their view of God is jacked up because of their sin. Their guilty conscience is perverting their view of what's going on, what's happening, how, how to interpret what's going on. And it's all messed up. And they've got this perverted view of God, like this God is mean and out to get them. And it's because of their own sin and their own guilt that they're thinking this about God. And so we're going to ask God to teach us, encourage us to properly understand him in light of our own sin. And he's going he's gonna to call us to come to him and feast at his table of grace this morning. Lord, would you, would you do that this morning? Would you uh, encourage us 
to see our sin and not to deny it, not to push it back, not to uh, allow it to cause, to distort our view of you and not to hide from you and not to run from you and not to, to view life circumstances improperly as, as sin tends to do in our life. Lord, cleanse us this morning as we throw ourselves on your mercy through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's in his glorious name I pray, amen. All right, so let's begin in verse one. Remember where we are in the story. Joseph had interpreted Pharaoh's dream in a miraculous rise from prison to power. God put him in this place where he could interpret the Pharaoh's dream. And the point was famine is coming after seven years of plenty. So in the seven years of plenty, you better store up the grain or we're gonna all starve to death. And so in verse one, we see when Jacob, their dad, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing there looking at each other? Do something, right? That's what he says. Why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Now remember, as readers, we know more than the characters in the story know. They don't know that Joseph, their brother, whom they sold into slavery, committed horrendous acts of evil against him. We, it, we have a tendency to just kind of gloss over that. That's human trafficking of their brother. Nearly, di- nearly died and sold him into slavery That brother is now the number two man of Egypt, and they don't know it. And dad's sending them, go. Another thing that we know as readers that they should know, but they may have forgotten, they're the chosen family. They're the chosen seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the one that's supposed to lead to the Messiah. One of these kids, and one of them, all of them are about to die. They're all about to starve to death, but... God graciously is working to provide for their needs. So, verse 3. So, 10, and you're going, okay, 10. There was 12, now we're down to 10. 10 of Joseph's brothers were down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send little Benjamin. The, uh, the youngest son, who was the other son, Joseph and Benjamin, were the sons of Rachel. Joseph's brother, with his brothers, he didn't send them, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came. So everybody's coming to Egypt to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So at this point, we see this is a matter of life and death for Joseph's brothers. They have only one hope. They got nothing. They're coming bankrupt to this place. They've got no grain. They've got nothing to barter with. And it is life or death. And this is a picture of all of our condition spiritually. Romans says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of those sin is death. All we, all of us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We all are desperate and Christ says that we come only those who come spiritually bankrupt. And so we come like this seeking the bread of life. We need the bread of life or we will die. 
verse 6, we see now Joseph was governor over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And we go, aha, finally, we've been waiting for this moment. And Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them. Imagine what Joseph is feeling at this moment. What would you be feeling if your wicked, evil brothers who tried to kill you, sold you into slavery, which led to you then being falsely accused of rape, which led to you being thrown into prison, which led to you rotting in prison for many, many years as you continued to keep your head down and was faithful and obeyed the Lord and your life is spiraling out of control circumstantially. How many of us would salivate at the opportunity to have those brothers kneeling at our feet. Verse seven, Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them, but then he treated them like strangers and he spoke roughly to them. So he's gonna have a little fun with them. Where do you come from? He said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. The last thing they suspected was that this was their brother. I mean, it would have been ridiculous to think their brother had risen to the most powerful man in Egypt apart from Pharaoh. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. You remember the dreams? At the beginning of the narrative, the Lord revealed to Joseph, like the scriptures reveals to us, the unseen future that's gonna take place. He told Joseph, all your family will bow down to you. And he got a little cocky, spewed that to his brothers, and they said, well, we're gonna take care of that and sold him into slavery. But here it is, God's word has come true against all odds. And so God has been faithfully working, getting Joseph to the point where he is in power in Egypt, and now his brothers have bowed down to him. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all just sons of one man. But look what he says next, or what they say next. They say, we are honest men. And he's going, oh, really? I do believe remembering you tried to kill me and you sold me into slavery. And they said, we are honest men. And he the rest of the text is going to spend testing and prodding and revealing the truth of that statement or the, false, the falsity of that statement. They are going to be tested to see, are they honest men or not? Are they innocent before the ruler or not? Can they really come before the ruler honest about their selves? Look, we're innocent. So Joseph starts to press in on this honesty claim in verse 12. 42.12, he said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. And he's like, oh, really? So he dead? Why don't you tell me a little more about that? Honest men, it's a lie. One of them is dead, one's with dad, and here we are. 
Verse 14, but Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. So what's going on here from the perspective of the brothers, I think they've been living with this lie so long, they're starting to believe it. I mean, they say it like it's nothing, you know. No, 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 we're not spies. We're not guilty of that. There's, we're, we're all 12 brothers. There's only 10 of us because one is with dad and the other one died a long time ago. And they really believe that they're innocent. And we all know as readers from a completely different perspective, from the perspective of the ruler, they are not innocent by any means. They are guilty as can be. They are liars. They are murderers. They are wicked. They're not spies, but they certainly are guilty. Verse 15, by this you shall be tested. So here they're character, their claims of innocent are being tested by the ruler. So you see where this picture is. This is all a picture of the gospel and we are like the brothers coming before the ruler and we, if we come and claim our innocence, it will be tested and a testing in the scriptural sense means a revealing of the truth like the idea of taking a test in school reveals if you really do know the material as you claim to know. There is a revealing of the truth here. And it says, by the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother Benjamin comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother. And while you remain confined, look what it says, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or not. This is the day of the Lord we all will face before the presence of God where all the secrets of our hearts are laid bare and there is no pretending. It's like Psalm 90 verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. When we come into the presence of God, there's no hiding our secret sins. He knows everything. And so Joseph continues or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. So he thought about it for three days. What am I gonna do here? And he comes up with this plan in verse 19. If you are honest men, you see that repeated over and over. If you're telling the truth, if you're really honest if, if, let me just test if your words are true, if you are honest, if you are really innocent. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine, grain for the famine of your household and bring your youngest brother to me. Why? So your words will be verified and you shall not die. If you're innocent, you won't die. The ruler says, and they did so. So clearly this is all about their honesty, their integrity, their guilt, their innocence. What do you think the boys were thinking during all this? If your words are true, they just said, oh, well, one, one brother died, but we're not, I mean, we're innocent. If your words are true, then everything's gonna be fine. But if you're guilty, we got a problem. What do you think they're thinking? As they sat in the presence of the ruler, 
Well, look at verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Wow. Now, where did that come from? Where did that come from? All of a sudden, their guilty conscience strikes them. You know, we, we really are guilty. We've all been telling this lie. And look what they do. They, they connect the dots to their, to their distress. The reason we're being accused falsely of being spies, the reason this governor is getting us, it's karma. Right? We killed, we, we did this to our brother and now it's all coming back. In their understanding, it's not karma. That's what our culture would say. But in, in their understanding, they're, they're thinking God is out to get us. God knows what we did, and now God is finally getting us back. That's why the stress has, become, has come upon us. The cries of their brother has been haunting them, and they've been trying to push it back and trying to push it down and trying to convince themselves that they're okay and they're going to be fine, and that's not, what, that's not really bad. And here, the first sign of something going wrong, they're like, I knew God was out to get me. I knew God hated me. I knew God was holding a grudge. I knew I couldn't go into church. I knew I couldn't pray. I knew I couldn't read the Bible. Why would I want to be in the presence of God when I'm guilty and I'm a liar and I've been faking it and I'm a poser? God hates me, is what they're thinking. But we know the whole story. We know what's going on. Does God hate them? Is God out to get them? What has God been doing? God's been making sure they didn't die. God's been making sure that there was grain to keep them alive. God has been working in Joseph's life to put him in the position to make sure that they were saved. But because of their guilt, they think God is out to get them. That God is going to condemn them. That God is going to pour his wrath on them. They don't understand the true, gracious, loving, kindness, long-suffering, merciful grace of God. And their sin is the problem. The sin is lying. The enemy is lying to them. That's why this stress has come upon us. It's because God knows what we did and God is out to get me. I wonder how many of you are here today feeling just like that. You've got unconfessed sin you haven't dealt with, you haven't given it over to God and you haven't trusted Christ, his blood to cover that, to forgive you. And so you live with the guilt and, and it's just growing over the years. It's grown and you've, it's kept you from coming to church. It's kept you from reading the word. It's kept you from praying because you don't feel God wants you in his presence. And so it's converted, it's turned 
perverted all this into some religious activity that's hollow and empty of love and relationships. And it's just this thing you're doing to try to just hope that I'm going to go to church because I feel guilty and maybe this will earn some favor with God. But inside you feel condemned and you feel like God's mad at you. That's miserable. And that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. God loves you and wants you to come to him and experience and feast on his grace that is offered through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we're in sin, what happened in the garden? They were hiding. God comes in the coolness of the day and they're hiding and he's covering them, covering their shame. But they're like, oh, he's mad. He's gonna condemn and he says, I've come to cover you. And then what they do when he starts asking questions. So, all right, Adam, all right, Eve, what, what exactly happened here? And they start going, it's her fault. It's his fault. It's your fault. It's not my fault. Look what we see again, the same pattern. Verse 22, Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? I told you we shouldn't have killed Joseph. We shouldn't have traded Joseph. He didn't kill him, but they're about to. I told you we shouldn't uh, sell him into slavery, but you didn't listen. And so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. That's why this is happening, because of our sin. They think God hates them. They think God is mad at them. And they think God is out to get them. Now we know the whole story. God is working to save them and to reconcile them with Joseph. But in their guilt, their view is perverted. So Joseph sends all but Simeon home with grain. He says, y'all take all this grain, go home to your dad, bring the grain and get Benjamin and bring Benjamin back. But he ain't done messing with them. He says, well, let me put some of the money in the sack that they paid for this grain, put it back in their sack. We don't know his intentions, but we can tell he's doing something. He puts it in the sack and seals it up. And then it says in verse 26, then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and they departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw the money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, hey, my money has been put back in the sack. Here it is in the sack. And look what he says. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this God has done to us? God hates us because of what we did. And God is out to get us. You see what sin does to us with our view of God? God is mad at me. And that bad happened to me because God is mad at me. And this circumstance is because God hates me. But you know what? I deserve it because look what I did. Is that an accurate view of God in the Bible? No. God is pursuing them to save them and to reconcile them. But I can't help but think Joseph is really enjoying this a lot. 
Chapter 42, verse 29 says, When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that happened. So they told him, hey, look, the governor there kept Simeon. And don't you know Jacob's going, seriously? They're just picking my brothers off, my boys off one at a time. He said, they kept Simeon and he wants Benjamin. He's like, no, you are not taking Benjamin. And so they, they, he, so they all stay there for a while until finally they're starving again. They need more grain. And so Jacob finally says, all right, go. Verse 11 of chapter 43, he says, it says, then their father Israel, Jacob's name is Israel, said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey and gum and myrrh and pistachio nuts and almonds and take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks and perhaps, just perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again back to the man, the governor. Verse 14, may God Almighty grant you mercy. <clears throat> may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send you back, send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. And so in these verses, we see Jacob Israel, his, Jacob Israel has no other choice they're to the point of starving again. He has no other choice but to send them back to face the ruler. And what is his only hope? What is he saying? The only hope we have is what? Is that the ruler is what? Merciful. And that's, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we stand before our God, our judge, guilty as condemned. We have nothing in our hands to offer and our only hope is to say, I'm throwing myself on your mercies. I, I, I am, my only hope is the character of God to be merciful to me, a guilty sinner. That's the gospel. It's not about doing enough to make him like you better. It's not hoping your good outweighs your bad. It is realizing you're guilty and your only hope is that God is merciful to you and he will be through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's resigned to the will of God in his life. He says, if my only hope is the mercy of God. And if I'm bereaved of my children, then I'm bereaved. But I'm trusting in the mercies of God. God is trustworthy. God is gracious. God is kind. The scriptures are filled with these descriptions of the character of God. Like Joel, the prophet Joel cries out in chapter 2, Joel 2 verse 13. It says, return to the Lord your God, to the rebellious Israel in their sin. Return to rebellious followers of Christ. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's what God's really like. And he's calling out to you today, turn back to me. I'm gracious and slow to anger. I bound in love. 
I'm gracious, I'm merciful. Come to me. Don't hide from God because of your sin. You say, well, you don't know what I've done, Pastor. I'm guilty. I say, I know, you are guilty. I didn't say you weren't. I'm guilty. But God's gracious and God's merciful beyond all imagination. And he's calling you, come back to me. Stop hiding from me. Stop thinking I'm out to kill you or I'm out to get you or I'm trying to punish you or I'm trying to condemn you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, he adopts you as his child and he loves you and is so patient. Come to Christ. So they come back, he says, he relents. Jacob sends his kids back up to the ruler. Let's see how it goes. Chapter 43, verse 15. So the men took this present and they took the double the money with them and baby boy Benjamin. And they arose and went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph, the ruler. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, kill him, kill them all. That's what they deserve. It's not what he said. He said, bring them into the house and not slaughter them, but slaughter a sacrifice for them. An animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me today. (laughs) What a glorious picture. He says, let's celebrate. Let's throw a party. My kids have come back to me. My family has come to me. He doesn't want to get even. He has nothing but celebration and love and grace for them, for his brothers. Now, I just want to pause for a minute and get on the earthly level. This whole thing is a picture of the gospel, but let's just think for a minute. What enables Joseph, who is a real person? He's not God. He's not Christ. He just reminds us of Christ. But what enabled him to have forgiveness and grace towards his brothers? Now, we can't downplay the wickedness of his sin, of their sin against him. It was wicked. I mean, it was criminal. Sold into human trafficking. Almost killed him. How in the world can he have the power over them and say, praise God that you're here, I love you, instead of, How did he not get eaten up with bitterness and unforgiveness and hatred and anger? He he knew the grace of God. He knew that there am I before the Father. I am guilty. I am wicked. I am evil. I nailed Jesus to the cross. I'm not a good, innocent person. I've been tested and it's proven. I failed the test. I deserve to die, but God in his grace forgave me. And I'm going to give that grace to others. That's the transforming power of the grace of God in our lives. So he throws a feast. 
It's a picture of God's love for us. It's a picture of the, the feast that we have and, and the portions that, that are, they are given, we will see, comes from the table of Joseph himself. It reminds me of Jesus telling the parable of the prodigal son when his son took the dad's wealth and ran off his inheritance and, and wasted it. And then he he's just finds himself in the pig pen and he's embarrassed, but he comes, wants to come back to his father, but he's, he's afraid his dad's going to reject him. And his dad sees him coming. And what does his dad do? He runs to him and he embraces him with love and tears and, and acceptance and a hug. And he says, throw a feast. My son has returned to me. This is what God says to his children. Come back to me. Let's be reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ, who is the lamb sacrificed for our sins. And so remember, Joseph Stewart invited them in. They don't know it's time for a party. They don't know what's going on. The steward invites them in. And what are they thinking in verse 18? As the steward invites them in, they're saying, it's because of the money. It was replaced in our sacks the first time, and that's why we've been brought in, so that he's going to assault us, he's going to fall upon us, and he's going to enslave us. Why do they think that? He's going to enslave us. Because <laughs> that's exactly what they did. They enslaved their brother. And so that's what they think God's going to do. God's, they're gonna, or the ruler's going to do. They're gonna, he's going to enslave us. Is that your view of God? God's mad at you. God, God wants you to be miserable. He's punishing you for your sin. Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is the Lord delaying his return to restore paradise? It's because he's waiting for you to come to repentance. He is slow to anger. He wants you to come to repentance. Verse 23, we see steward brings them in. They're like, look, it's because of the money, I know. Verse 23, he replied, peace to you. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has treasure for you. He's put treasure in your sack. I've received your money. Relax. And then he brought Simeon out to them. He's saying, you've got it all wrong. You think he's out to hurt you? He's been lavishing you with money and treasure. Verse 29, Joseph comes into the room. He lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurries out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. He entered his chambers and he wept there. He was moved with compassion towards these guilty sinners. 
we hear the heart of God here. In Zechariah 10, 6, the prophet says this. He says, to a rebellious people, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back. Why? Because I have compassion upon them and they shall not be as though I had rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. That's what the Lord is saying. I have not rejected my children. Come to me in repentance. And then in verse 31, Joseph threw them a feast. Then he washed his face. He got his act together. He came out controlling himself. He said, serve the food. And they served him, Joseph, by himself. And then the brothers by themselves. And the Egyptians ate by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews because they were an abomination. And they sat before him, before the ruler, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest and then the youngest and then one after another, they all sat there and I love this line, and the men looked at one another in amazement. Are you kidding me? As it sunk in on them. This is ridiculous. He is throwing us a feast. And we thought he was out to get us. Now, if I was there, I'd be like, I ain't eating first. Watch him and see if he croaks. He's out to get me. It's a picture of extravagant amazement, amazing grace. And that's the gospel. It is amazing grace. Guilty sinners being thrown a feast because they've come back to the Father and he receives them by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And it says that the portions, verse 34, portions were taken from taken to them from Joseph's table, from the ruler's table, portions are given to them. And that's what God does. He takes the portions of Christ's righteousness and he gives them to us. And he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it is a feast of grace. Will you come to the feast of grace? Don't let your sin skew your view of God. He is pursuing you with grace and he's inviting you to come to the feast and feast on the righteousness of Christ. Will you come to him today? In the rest of the story, God keeps his promises. He gets all the rest of the family into Egypt where it says they are fruitful and they multiply into a mighty nation. And so God preserving the seed, which would be a blessing to all the nations, he's making his seed a a mighty nation and he's got one thing left. They got to get to the promised land. And that's where we see the rest of the story go. And God, I pray that this morning, as we've seen just a glorious, beautiful picture of your grace that everyone, every single person here will repent of their sin, confess it to God. Yes, we are guilty of our sin. Just like later in the story, they all finally get to the point where they say, we are guilty. And we need God. Lord, may every person here 
whether it's the first time or the millionth time. Confess our sin. Bathe in the righteousness of Christ through faith because you are a merciful God. May we feast at your table of grace. And as we sing, Lord, I pray that a mighty conviction will fall upon us and that your spirit will humble us and that all our wrong and proper views of God will melt and we will see nothing but glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.